Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Sarah Thompson, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. The inflammatory hypothesis states that inflammation has a role in perpetuating atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, or ASCVD. This hypothesis and related research have led to the consideration of colchicine as a suitable agent for reducing cardiovascular risk in those with established ASCVD. Join pharmacist Maggie Rushmeyer to review the guideline-directed medical therapy for secondary prevention of ASCVD and the clinical trials which help define colchicine's role in this therapeutic setting. With that being said, today I will be presenting on colchicine for secondary prevention with my presentation today entitled Colchicine to Reduce Cardiovascular Risk in Established ASCVD. By the end of my presentation today, I'm hoping that you all will be able to recall the definition of an indication for secondary prevention of ASCVD, identify drug interactions with colchicine based on its metabolism, and discuss the current literature and applicability of the clinical trial results. These are a list of abbreviations you may see throughout my presentation today, more listed here for your reference. We will dive in now and work on recalling the definition of an indication for secondary prevention of ASCVD. When we think of defining ASCVD, we really need to think about several categories that make up that overall definition of ASCVD. So one category would be coronary heart disease, and some conditions that fall into that category include myocardial infarction, angina, and heart failure. When we think of peripheral artery disease, we think of things like intermittent claudication or critical limb ischemia. And then the cerebrovascular disease, we think about stroke or transient ischemic attack. And all of these categories together comprise ASCVD. Putting ASCVD into greater context for you here, ASCVD actually happens to be the leading cause of worldwide mortality. It um, can be attributed to about 17.6 million deaths annually. When we look at the United States specifically, stroke is actually the fifth leading cause of death in the United States, and also one of the major causes of serious long-term disability in our adult population. So we see that there is still this significant morbidity and mortality associated with ASCVD, so still an area for continued research and development. When we think about the pathophysiology of ASCVD, we really think about these plaques that continue to build up over time. It is thought of this more gradual process, as you can see in the image depicting, um, as the image goes down, I should say, you see the narrowing of the artery over time. This results in, in this inflammatory response as the plaques damage the arterial walls. Um, it does lead to inflammation in that site. And ultimately these plaques can rupture as well. And this can lead to some of those characteristic cardiovascular events that we think of, including heart attacks and strokes. When we think about risk factors for the development of ASCVD, there are several. I just wanted to call out a few of the main primary ones here. So there's hypertension, diabetes, hyperlipidemia, cigarette smoking, obesity, having a family history of ASCVD. And then when we think about age, 
Uh, males greater than 45 years of age have this increased risk and females greater than 55 years of age have an increased risk as well. And that's largely due to it being this gradual process over time that we see this manifesting more so in adulthood and older adulthood. So what is really meant by secondary prevention? Well, we can see here on the slide, secondary prevention refers to the effort to treat known clinically significant ASCVD and to prevent or delay the onset of disease manifestation. Ultimately, it's those who have been diagnosed with ASCVD. They've had a known event, um, whereas primary prevention really focuses on the efforts to prevent or delay the onset of ASCVD. So when we think about secondary prevention, medication therapy is going to be fundamental. It will be the cornerstone to help aid in further preventing uh, more events from taking place. Looking now at some specific goals for secondary prevention, there are a few conditions listed on this slide, as you can see here. Um, really making sure that these conditions are well controlled helps to prevent further events from taking place. I wanted to look at specifically the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association guidelines, and then also the European Society of Cardiology guidelines to look at the differences maybe between some of the goals that they um, call out. So when we look at hyperlipidemia, the ACCAHA guidelines really call for an LDL cholesterol being less than 70 milligrams per deciliter. And then they want this 50% or greater reduction in baseline LDL. The European Society of Cardiology, they have a little more stricter goal when it comes to LDL cholesterol being less than 55, still calling for that 50% or greater reduction in baseline LDL. For hypertension, the ACCAHA guidelines recommend a blood pressure goal of less than 130 over 80. And the ESC guidelines are a little more relaxed, calling for a blood pressure goal of less than 140 over 90. However, across the board, you can see that for diabetes, both guidelines land on a hemoglobin A1C goal of less than 7%. I did wanna mention that in 2022, the American College of Cardiology on their own published this expert consensus regarding agents for LDL lowering for those um, patients to manage ASCVD risk. And in that specific expert consensus, they called for uh, an LDL goal of less than 55 and still that 50% or greater reduction in baseline LDL. So this may be indicative of tighter goals around cholesterol moving forward. So just something to think about um, here. When we think about medication therapy for secondary prevention there, is a, a vast um, amount of evidence and support behind many of these treatments for um, many of these risk factors, as you can see, um, hyperlipidemia, hypertension, et cetera. Um, we know that for hyperlipidemia, for secondary prevention, high-intensity statin therapy is really going to be the recommended medication. Um, I may or may not be added if that statin therapy alone is unable to help the patient achieve their LDL goals. Then again, if the addition of azetamide does not bring the LDL goals into range, a PCSK9 inhibitor may be considered at that time. And some of the more recent guidelines, vempedoic acid and bile acid sequestrants are starting to become mentioned more often. Um, however, these would, would still be more secondary agents to consider. For hypertension, guidelines recommend ACE inhibitors or ARBs, beta blockers, and aldosterone antagonists. The aldosterone antagonist more so in the setting of heart failure with an ejection fraction less than 40%. 
For diabetes, um, the guidelines really recommend metformin, SGLT2 inhibitors, or GLP-1 receptor agonists. Antiplatelet therapy will be common in secondary prevention with aspirin being the backbone that may or may not also be in the setting of a P2Y12 inhibitor. That is only if dual antiplatelet therapy is indicated, such as in the case of a recent myocardial infarction, PCI, or cabbage. Angina, the guidelines recommend um, beta blockers here or calcium channel blockers and also potentially long-acting nitrates. Now, I did want to take a moment to introduce our patient. Here we have GA, a 62-year-old male with a past medical history significant for hyperlipidemia and stage 2 hypertension. Ten days ago, GA suffered a STEMI and underwent a successful PCI. Given the patient's past medical history and recent cardiac event, it is anticipated that GA will require several adjustments to his medication regimen in the upcoming weeks. A little bit more information around GA. We see his medication list prior to hospitalization on the screen here. With that being aspirin, 81 milligrams a day, amlodipine, 10 milligrams a day, lisinopril, 40 milligrams a day, metformin, 1,000 milligrams two times a day, and rosuvastatin, 10 milligrams a day. The recent lab vital, excuse me, lab values and vitals that we have available to us include a blood pressure of 150 over 90 a hemoglobin A1C of 6.1%, and an LDL cholesterol level of 115 milligrams per deciliter. That brings us to our first assessment question. Which of the following qualifies this patient as a candidate for secondary prevention? We have either A, hypertension, B, his post-STEMI status, C, prediabetes, or D, hyperlipidemia. Give you guys a second to answer this here. All right, I think we have kind of rounded out uh, the answers coming in here. So looks like 100% of you answered B, post-STEMI, which would be the correct answer here. If we remember back to one of the very first slides when we were looking at those categories that comprise ASCBD, we remember that um, myocardial infarction fell into the coronary heart disease category of ASCBD. So that would be the correct answer here. In terms of answer A, hypertension, and D, hyperlipidemia, these are only risk factors for the development of ASCVD. And then answer C, prediabetes was kind of the odd one out here. Um, prediabetes does not fall into any of those categories that would indicate ASCVD. All right, we will move into talking about identifying drug interactions with colchicine based on the metabolism of the medication. But before we focus in on colchicine, I did want to give uh, this overview of inflammation in cardiovascular disease, as it will be important in the following portions of the presentation today. ASCVD was really once thought to be primarily due to the accumulation of cholesterol. However, the 2004 PROVE-IT trial and the 2015 IMPROVE-IT trial really pointed to inflammation being another significant factor in um, cardiovascular disease. The PROVE-IT trial specifically noted that 43% of those who were treated with high-intensity atorvastatin therapy still had a C-reactive protein or CRP level greater than or equal to 2. And to put it into context for you, a CRP level of greater than or equal to 2 indicates clinically significant inflammation. The IMPROVE-IT trial 
noted 47% of those who were receiving a statin plus azetamide, they also had CRP levels greater than or equal to two. So in both of these studies, they found that that, that cardiovascular risk remained despite these patients being on adequate statin therapy. And that was just due to the effects of inflammation. We know that there are certain inflammatory markers that have been associated with ASCVD risk, two of which being interleukin-1 beta and interleukin-6. And then I included the 2017 CANTOS trial on this slide as well to round out our timeline of those trials, more so focused on the inflammatory piece. But I do want to highlight the CANTOS trial a little bit more in depth here on this next slide. So as I mentioned, this CANTOS trial was conducted in 2017, and it was done so, it was done in order to explore this inflammatory hypothesis. The inflammatory hypothesis states that inflammation has its own independent effect on atherosclerosis. So canikinumab was a medication looked at with this trial. It is a monoclonal antibody. It targets and binds to interleukin-1-beta. As we heard on the previous slide, interleukin-1-beta is one of those inflammatory markers that has been associated with ASCVD risk. Breaking it down most simply here, the CANTOS trial looked at canukinumab versus placebo in those with a previous myocardial infarction and who had elevated CRP levels. Canukinumab was seen to reduce major cardiovascular adverse events. And interestingly, LDL cholesterol levels were unaffected. With that being said, this CANTOS trial really worked to add substantial evidence to back up this inflammatory hypothesis. And while canukinumab is unlikely to revolutionize therapy just due to its high cost, the major takeaway here was that the interleukin-1 beta, interleukin-6, and the CRP pathway, which we will look at next, should really be a focus of continued research in targeting cardiovascular inflammation. Before we dive too much further into this image here, I want to orient you to what we're looking at on this slide. You see the two rows of tan cells. In between that is our artery. Those rows of tan cells is the endothelial layer of the artery. And then either above or below, we have the intima layer, which is the layer just beneath the endothelium. We know that chronic endothelial injury of an artery results in this endothelial dysfunction. That leads to greater permeability of the endothelial layer. And in the setting of um, inflammation and cardiovascular disease, we know that cholesterol crystals can end up depositing in that intima layer underneath the endothelium. These atherosclerotic lesions are able to perpetuate this inflammatory response and neutrophils and other inflammatory cells will migrate to these plaque sites because they're causing a lot of inflammation. These neutrophils are able to also enter into that intima layer and they can take several different actions. First, we'll talk about how these neutrophils are able to activate the inflammasome. The inflammasome is part of the innate immune system um, they are generally inactive until some sort of stimuli activates them. That can be multiple different things, but in, in this setting here, we think about cholesterol crystals being a way that the inflammasome can become activated and also neutrophils themselves, as this arrow is depicting, will activate the inflammasome. This inflammasome becomes important because it goes on to produce interleukin-1-beta. 
Interleukin 1 beta goes on to produce interleukin 6. And then we have our end product of CRP produced by the hepatocytes, and this inflammation persists. That other arrow coming off of that neutrophil there is just indicating that as these neutrophils um, enter into the intima, they can release certain granules. And what these granules do, they can cause the plaque to become quite um, unstable and lead to potential risk of rupturing. That's because some of these granules are metalloproteases, which have a certain um, way that they kind of break down the plaque in such a way that they can lead to it becoming more unstable and risk of rupture leading to those characteristic cardiovascular events. Before we talk about medication options for targeting inflammation, I did want to touch on some of the more guideline-based uh, ways we can target inflammation without using medications. The 2019 ACCAHA guidelines for primary prevention, when talking about diet, they really highlight that diets should consist of majority fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, and fish, just to round out that um, cardio protective diet, if you will. Again, those same guidelines call for a minimum of 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise each week. Exercise can promote these anti-inflammatory mediators throughout our bodies to help with um, any inflammation that is present. While we are talking about physical activity, I did wanna mention that there is this really strong evidence that supports referral to cardiac rehab for those patients that are indicated. It actually has been said to decrease mortality at five years post-participation. Overall, cardiac rehab can help patients improve those modifiable risk factors help them with their medication adherence, uh, help to overall increase functional status, their exercise capacity, and their overall quality of life. Unfortunately, despite all this strong evidence showing this great benefit, cardiac rehab still tends to be quite underutilized. Weight loss in and of itself can help reduce inflammation throughout the body. So can smoking cessation. And when we think about alcohol consumption, we want to think about more along the moderation side of things here, as alcohol can create um, quite a lot of inflammation throughout the body. Now, taking a look at some of the medication options for targeting inflammation more in this cardiovascular or um, ASCVD realm. We have statin therapy. These statins, we know that they are lipid-lowering agents. They help to prevent um, the amount of cholesterol that is around, prevent the further plaques from developing and becoming um, issues, I guess you could say, um, because there's less cholesterol and plaque around, there is less of that arterial wall inflammation. So we see um, that being toned down with statin therapy. There's also canakinumab, as we talked about before from the Cantos trial. It inhibits interleukin-1-beta, so it prevents that inflammatory cascade from continuing on and preventing or resulting in the production of CRP as its end product. Fulchicine prevents the activation and migration of neutrophils to those sites of inflammation. And it also inhibits the inflammasome pathway. Bringing us to this image again, I, I want to highlight where the different targets are for the medications that were just mentioned on the previous slide. 
So we'll start with our statins. We know that they are preventing, we're working to reduce the amount of cholesterol that is around. So ultimately working to reduce the number of plaques, the size of the plaques that are there. We know that canukinumab is that interleukin-1 beta inhibitor. So that will prevent, like I mentioned before, the downstream effect to the CRP end product. And then colchicine has a few different areas where it's acting in this image specifically here. We see that colchicine at the very top is working to stop that neutrophil migration, adhesion, and activation. Neutrophils uh, tend to preferentially accumulate, or excuse me, colchicine tends to preferentially accumulate in neutrophils. And that is because the neutrophils lack that P-glycoprotein pump. And so it tends to um, accumulate there. Also, colchicine, because it is preventing the neutrophils from entering into the intima layer and becoming activated, um, it's preventing the granule release from occurring. And then it is also um, helping to prevent inflammasome activation. Focusing a little more closely on colchicine now, we know that it is an anti-inflammatory agent. It binds to and inhibits tubulin polymerization. So it really disrupts the cellular cytoskeleton, um, mitosis, and intracellular transport activities. I mentioned before that it does tend to accumulate in neutrophils due to the neutrophils lacking that P-glycoprotein efflux pump. It was originally FDA approved for gout, although we do commonly see it being utilized in pericarditis. Side effects of colchicine include diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, and myalgias. These side effects are generally dose dependent. So if the, or if the dose is um, reduced or if the medication is discontinued altogether, we would expect a resolution of those side effects. Colchicine is a substrate of P-glycoprotein and CYP3A4. So we would want to be mindful of any renal or hepatic impairment as dose reductions would be needed. Since we are talking about colchicine being a substrate for CYP3A4 and P-glycoprotein, we would expect that inhibitors of both would affect colchicine's metabolism and excretion. In general, when we're talking about the strong inhibitors, they should generally be avoided um, with colchicine. However, when it comes to the mild to moderate inhibitors of both, we would could be could use them cautiously or um, expect that dose adjustments or reductions would be needed there, but also utilizing that shared decision-making decision, decision process um, with the patient there. I did bold more of the cardiovascular medications on this slide, as you can see here, as we talk about colchicine being approved now for secondary prevention, we would likely run into um, more of these cardiovascular medications becoming drug-drug interactions with the colchicine. So I did just want to call those out here. We see for mild to moderate CYP3A4 inhibitors, we have atorvastatin, diltiazem, dronetarone, and verapamil. Strong P lycoprotein inhibitors include propafenone in the cardiovascular realm. And then moderate to mild P lycoprotein inhibitors include amiodarone, carvedilol, diltiazem, dronetarone, simvastatin, and verapamil. A few other pearls regarding colchicine. When we think about availability and accessibility of colchicine for our patients, I did a quick GoodRx price search, which gave me an estimate of about $20 for a 30-day supply. 
It is available in oral capsule, tablet, and solution form. In the United States, only the 0.6 milligram strength is available. This will become important as we look at the clinical trials that resulted in Colchicine's FDA approval for secondary prevention. In those trials, they were using a 0.5 milligram daily dose of colchicine. That's because that strength is available in those countries where those trials were conducted, and the United States was not included um, in those trials. As we can see, dosing is a 0.5 milligram daily dose for ASCVD. And typically, you'll see 0.6 milligrams twice a day for other conditions. However, this is very patient-dependent, um, situational dependency as well. Because colchicine is a substrate of CYP3A4, I did want to look if there is any pharmacogenomic guidance. And at this time, PharmGKB uh, provides no recommendations. I did want to point out that Ladoco will be the brand name of the 0.5 milligram strength that is expected to become available in the later months of this year. That brings us to our second assessment question. GA's healthcare team is considering the initiation of a beta blocker. If colchicine were to be considered in the future, which beta blocker would result in a drug-drug interaction with colchicine? Is it A, atenolol, B, metoprolol, C, carvedilol, or D, bisoprolol? All right, I think we've kind of stayed steady with our 17 responses. So 94% of you answered C, carvedilol, which would be the correct answer here. Um, I... I want to jump forward, but I don't know if we jump back. We might lose the data, but that's okay. Um, recalling this slide, we see that carvedilol happens to be that moderate to mild peak like a protein inhibitor. So if that were to be initiated with colchicine, we may expect that drug-drug interaction um, to be there. Whereas if I hop back here, answer A, atenolol, B, metoprolol, and D, bisoprolol would be incorrect here as, um, as these three do not inhibit P-glycoprotein or CYP3A4, we would not expect a drug-drug interaction in that sense. All right, lastly, we are going to discuss the current literature and the applicability of those clinical trial results. To kind of round out our clinical trial landscape here, we've talked about the CANTOS trial that was conducted in 2017. I want to focus our attention more so on the Colcott trial that was conducted in 2019 and also the Ladoco 2 trial conducted in 2020. These are the Colcott and the Ladoco 2 trials are the main two trials that resulted in Colchicine's approval, FDA approval for secondary prevention that just occurred in June of this year. The Colcott trial wanted to answer the clinical question, does Colchicine reduce recurrent cardiovascular events in those who experience a myocardial infarction in the past 30 days? This was a randomized double-blind multi-center controlled trial. It compared the, that 0.5 milligram daily dose of colchicine versus placebo. The primary outcome here was a composite of CV death, resuscitated cardiac arrest, myocardial infarction, stroke, and urgent hospitalization due to angina requiring coronary revascularization. When we look at the enrollment, it was a pretty large trial. Just over 4,700 individuals were enrolled you can see the randomization was pretty equal between the colchicine group and the placebo group. I did wanna call out some of the notable baseline characteristics here with those being that a mean number of days 
that had passed since the participant's myocardial infarction event was about 13 and a half days. The mean age was just over 60 years. Just under 81% were males in this trial. 93% had undergone a PCI. Um, just under 99% were on aspirin therapy. And just under 98% were on dual antiplatelet therapy. 99% on statin therapy and just under 89% were on a beta blocker. So we see very appropriate background therapy taking place here. For follow-up, the median length was about 23 months. When we look at the results, refreshing your memories on that primary outcome being that composite cardiovascular death, resuscitated cardiac arrest, myocardial infarction, stroke, and also that urgent hospitalization due to angina, we see that this occurred less frequently in the colchicine group than in the placebo group. We see a hazard ratio being 0.77, showing favor towards colchicine treatment, a p-value of 0.02, which indicates statistical significance, and then the number needed to treat here was 62. And as a reminder, the number needed to treat is the number of patients that would need to be treated in order to prevent one primary outcome event from occurring. So we want that number to be as low as possible. That would indicate greater benefit from the therapy. In terms of adverse events, they did occur more frequently in the colchicine group than in the placebo group with nausea and diarrhea being the most frequent in the colchicine group, which is not unexpected as we know those are common side effects of colchicine. When it comes to the serious adverse events, they did occur more frequently in the placebo group than the colchicine group. But I did want to call out that pneumonia did occur more frequently in the colchicine group than in the placebo group, and this was statistically significant. The trial didn't have a whole lot to comment on this taking place. They said that this could either be due to chance or uh, potentially it could reflect this altered immunologic response. Um, but as we know, with medications that act by reducing inflammatory or immune mechanisms, there may be that increased risk of infection. So maybe something to keep in mind as we think about implementing it in our patient populations. The Ladoco 2 trial wanted to answer the clinical question, does colchicine prevent cardiovascular events in those with established cardiovascular disease? It was the exact same trial design. Again, looking at colchicine, um, that 0.5 milligram daily dose versus placebo. Their primary outcome here was a composite of cardiovascular death, myocardial infarction, ischemic stroke, and coronary revascularization due to ischemia. We see here again a pretty large trial. Just over 5,500 individuals were enrolled. We see a, again a pretty even split between those being randomized to the colchicine group and those randomized to the placebo group. Again, I want to call out some of the notable baseline characteristics here with a mean age being 66 years. Um, just under 85% here were, were males in this trial. Just over 68% had experienced their cardiovascular event more than 24 months prior to enrollment into the trial. 94% were on statin therapy. 67% were on a single antiplatelet agent. Just over 23% were on dual antiplatelet therapy and just over 62% you see there were on a beta blocker. So again, we see appropriate background therapy taking place. Follow-up here again was a median length of just over 28 months, and patients were required to be clinically stable for six months 
for at least six months prior to enrollment in this trial. Again, refreshing your memory toward, to the primary outcome, which included that composite of cardiovascular death, myocardial infarction, ischemic stroke, and coronary revascularization due to ischemia. We see that this occurred less frequently in the colchicine group than in the placebo group. Our hazard ratio here was 0.69, again, showing favor towards treatment with colchicine. The p-value was less than 0.001, which again indicates statistical significance. And we see a lower number needed to treat here than what we even saw in the Colcott trial. However, when we look at death from non-cardiovascular cause and death from any cause, both occurred more frequently in the colchicine group than in the placebo group. Again, this trial didn't have a lot to comment regarding this. Um, so it still remains unclear if there is a certain subset of patients who might have this higher level of risk um, from low-dose colchicine therapy. Just briefly looking at some of the trial limitations, they are a majority the same between the Colcott trial and the Ladoco 2 trial. Both In both, there may be some limited generalizability due to the majority of patients enrolled being males. There was no collection of baseline blood pressure, lipids, or inflammatory markers, so it's a little unknown how well the risk factors were controlled beforehand. And also, being able to have a, a CRP before and after would be helpful to know if how colchicine um, ultimately affects that C-reactive protein. So that would be an improvement for the future. Also, both had limited follow-up durations at 23 months and then 20, approximately 28 months. The way these trials talk about colchicine being long-term therapy, that is a pretty short follow-up duration. We're not able to as effectively look at risks and benefits of colchicine for long-term. So again, another improvement for the future for trials to include longer follow-up durations so we gain better data around that. When it comes to the Colcott trial, their results are applicable only to those who had experienced a myocardial infarction. So at this point in time, where does colchicine fit into our guidelines? Well, colchicine made its way into the 2021 European Society of Cardiology guideline statement um, in their recommendation for anti-inflammatory therapy. Here, they were really looking at low-dose colchicine as a consideration for secondary prevention, specifically in those patients whose risk factors were not well controlled, or if they continued to have ongoing cardiovascular events despite optimal therapy. I do want to note that colchicine has not made its way into the ACC AHA guidelines at this time, although it was recently just FDA approved for secondary prevention in June of this year, 2023. This brings us to our third and final assessment question today. In both the Colcott and the Ladoco 2 trials, Colchicine was added on to guideline-directed medical therapy, which included which of the following? A, statin, B, metformin, C, empagliflozin, or D, spironolactone. Again, I think we've kind of rounded out our answers at 18 here. So, yes, the correct answer here was A, statin therapy. We saw in both the Colcott and the Ladoco 2 trials, 99% um, and 94% respectively were on statin therapy. Um, when it comes to B, metformin, C, empagliflozin, and D, spironolactone, the trials did not specifically count how many patients were on these therapies in the background. So we don't really know or have that information. So 
A was the, the correct answer here. Some final thoughts for you today as we wrap up. Uh, at this time, I, I really do think colchicine use should be reserved for those high-risk patients. They continue to have cardiovascular events despite optimized therapy. I think if patients have um, these risk factors that um, their therapies could be optimized, I think that really is the starting point before um, jumping to the addition of colchicine. Also understanding that patients who have a compromised immune function, they, they may be at this higher risk of infection. And so maybe in those patients, we'd want to avoid colchicine. However, I think as a whole, I think we can get excited about um, this exploration of looking towards other anti-inflammatory agents for this indication as we saw that ASCVD still has the significant morbidity and mortality. I want to bring us back to our patient GA here, just as a refresher, nothing has changed in our patient case. And as a reminder of his medications and some lab values and vitals. And I did wanna leave you with one final question today. Would you recommend that GA be initiated on colchicine therapy for secondary prevention? Something for you to kind of ponder as we wrap up. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics. Thank you.